It is indeed a pleasure to have this privilege to play here for you. And we, we intend to give you a very fine program, so just settle back, relax, and enjoy the moment. moment, 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 moment. Hey, welcome to Miked Up, an unapologetic low country-based podcast hosted by yours truly, Mika Gadsden. Um, this episode is going to be what I would describe as important. It provides important framing and commentary that I think is missing from the mainstream coverage of, drumroll, you got it, the Murdoch dynasty and the recent news that has exploded into the mainstream. Now, before I, I jump into my take and, and my framing, I want to catch some of you up on at least two aspects of the story that drew uh, the American public into the low country, drew them into this area and into this family's uh, pool. So check this out and I'll be right back. Two new details on that murder mystery in South Carolina, a mother and son from a prominent family found dead. Police revealing it was the father who discovered them and then called 911. Eva Pilgrim is there in South Carolina with the latest on the investigation this morning. Good morning. In a tan jumpsuit, handcuffed and shackled, Alec Murdoch faced a judge and criminal charges. Twitching and looking uncomfortable, the prominent South Carolina attorney, now a defendant in the low country court system, he knows all too well. Murdoch surrendered to authorities in Hampton County before noon Thursday. Now, because this episode aims to do something a little different from your typical true crime podcast. Uh, I just wanted to uh, familiarize you or get you caught up on this family and the recent scandals surrounding this family. So that's why I just put together the intros to two news stories that gave you the broad strokes. And for many listeners, you may have met this family uh, at the double homicide um, or at uh, the one of the patriarchs, the father, Alex, turning himself in this past week. Um, but for those of us who are a little bit more familiar with this family and the scandals that have been <laughs> that have been uh, surrounding them for quite some time, you know that uh, the story transcends the recent headlines and it's very deep. In fact, I think it's important to share just a little bit more of this family's history before I jump into some important framing. Uh, here we go. The Murdochs are a powerful Lowcountry family. For more than 85 years, a Murdoch has served as the 14th Circuit Solicitor. The reign began in 1920 with Randolph Murdoch Sr. and ended in 2005 when Randolph Randy Murdoch III retired. Between 1940 and 1986, Randolph Buster Murdoch Jr. served as solicitor after his father's death, making him the longest serving solicitor in U.S. history at that time. Randy continues to work as a part-time solicitor for the office, and his son Richard Alex Alexander Murdoch works as a volunteer prosecutor in the circuit. You know, I have to admit, it's sometimes very difficult to keep the family names straight. Uh, the Randolph Murdoch name has been passed down to multiple generations, and in that brief family history, you heard several Murdochs uh, reference. Um, for a point of clarification, though, uh, Randolph III, well, he passed away uh, fairly recently. And you also heard that clip mention Alex. We know Alex to currently, um, Alex is currently in an out-of-state uh, drug rehab facility. He was able to bond himself out uh, on his own personal recognizance. This family enjoys so many privileges, y'all. 
But um, yeah, after trying to stage his own murder or hiring a hitman to murder him uh, in an attempt to commit insurance fraud, $10 million insurance fraud, um, the judge thought it was appropriate for Alex to um, just walk essentially for now um, and uh, receive treatment at an out-of-state facility. And while I will never uh, diminish uh, the need or the necessity for um, drug rehab programs, I think given the bizarre uh, details of this case and given how many uh, how much how, how much money and how many resources this family enjoys, um, I, I see Alex as a flight risk, but I, I wanted to just, uh, at the time of this recording, I wanted to just clarify uh, what you just heard. It gave you a great snapshot as to who the family is and how long, how far back their power reaches. Um, and I thought that was very important. Also note the three news clips that I've included in the opening minutes of this recording. Uh, the links will be included in the show notes of this podcast episode. For those who are a little less familiar with me uh, and my work or my live streams on Twitch, uh, I'd like to just tell you that I'm, I'm a gadfly. I'm a social irritant. I'm the daughter of Jim Crow refugees. Uh, my father is a native to the low country. And so I have a unique connection to this place. And uh, it's led me, my history, my family's lineage has led me to occupy this role. Of, of, of someone, that of someone who interrogates the way power flows, especially given this state's unique uh, position in history in regards to the trafficking of enslaved Africans um, and also its commodification of that history in the form of um, a very capitalistic tourism industry, right? So I tend to uh, pull those things apart and look at those things through my lens. And I encourage folks to apply a myriad of lenses uh, to what they consume, especially in our local mainstream media. Um, and so that's what encouraged, I guess that's what motivated me to create this episode, to view this story from a different perspective. I, I wanna encourage you all to view this story from a different perspective. Um, you know, I think the reflex is, and it's actually uh, uh, quite made quite clear with the many podcasts that have emerged since this story has hit the um, the, the airwaves and hit the the television screens and the front pages of papers. It's quite clear that folks are viewing this story regarding this family as just a true crime story. And I, I want you to take a step back. I actually want you to resist the urge to view this merely as a true crime story. Yes, it's undeniable that there are aspects of this story that have proven to be entertaining, intriguing, captivating. You, you can fill in the blanks there. Um, but as a black person who resides in this uh, state full time, as the daughter of Jim Crow refugees, I think it's important to look at how this is a justice story and how the Murdoch's have, um, like some other dynastic families who've enjoyed so much privilege uh, and prominence over over hundreds of years, the, the Murdoch's have uh, created a justice system specifically for the elite, a justice system that's exclusive and um, one that helps to protect white wealth and white power and obscure any facts or findings 
that would threaten that white power and that white wealth. I hope that makes sense, right? And this is not something that I'm just spouting off. Um, I spent the last month specifically looking at not Alex and, and, and not the current scandals and not the current homicides. And I know that, that saying that even makes me feel a little cringy, but I, I took the last month and uh, I used my library card as, as I want to do. And I did a deep dive into this family and its history. Um, I researched many, many, many periodicals and local newspapers featuring this family um, and, and how they were able to navigate the justice system uh, as 14th Circuit solicitors. Now, navigate is probably an unusual word because I'm more inclined to say that they built, they tailor-made the justice system over time. They were able to customize the justice system to fit their needs. What I found over the many, many years, starting back to the 19, let's say 30s, 1940s, 50s, and 60s, I found a family that was hell-bent on keeping their vice-like grip on all of the levers within the justice system and uh, having that justice system serve them almost exclusively, at least as it pertains to the region where they had the most influence, right? In this low country region, these five counties where the 14th Circuit Solicitor tends to have uh, broad power. I spent the bulk of my time um, researching this family, uh, looking at a specific time period. Uh, That time period is the late 1940s through the early 1960s. Uh, This is when uh, Randolph Jr., aka Buster, this is where, where a time period where he was most active and he was serving as the 14th Circuit Solicitor. All right. So during that time period, not only did I get a better understanding as to how uh, Buster and ultimately the family uh, chose to um, chose to approach their position as solicitor. uh, I also found numerous scandals that Buster himself uh, was either a part of or orchestrated. And I'll get into those with great detail. But it was uncanny to me um, when I uncovered that um, SLED, and that's the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, um, this this state agency was as active in helping the Murdoch family maintain power uh, then. They were, they were as active then as they have been now, which leads me to highlight recent reporting, reporting from the Post and Courier. For those who don't know, the Post and Courier is our uh, main paper here in Charleston and in the Low Country, and they have a footprint that extends um, uh, throughout the state, but they are based here and have a long history here. Um, but there was a piece penned by Thad Moore from the Post and Courier back in June, uh, June 20th of 2021, when the double homicides where the mother and Paul Murdaugh, uh, the matriarch of the family and Paul Murdaugh, the young, the young um, boy, um, young son that uh, was already caught up in his own scandal, his own murder uh, scandal. Right. Uh, but anyway, back in June 20th, uh, all of the, the areas press descended upon this area to investigate this double homicide. 
But what I found particularly noteworthy about um, the press, the press's attempt to get uh, gain information and to 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 gather details, they were stymied by SLED. They were stymied by a law enforcement arm that, and I'm using air quotes you can't see, um, that oftentimes, descri- oftentimes describes itself as being an elite law enforcement or independent law enforcement arm here in South Carolina. But what I found in my research is that SLED has been very active in helping to protect the Murdoch family um, by obscuring facts and limiting access to facts and information uh, to the general public via the press. Or, and, and, and there's a number of ways. There are a number of ways that SLED um, overreaches. You can argue that they, they abuse the power that they have in order to protect the powerful and the prominent. Um, and so that's something that I have become more familiar uh, to. But when the Post and Courier's Thad Moore wrote it, wrote about his experience in trying to obtain information, that made me perk up. So um, if you get a chance, uh, research Thad Moore. Go ahead and visit the June 20th, 2021 article. Um, This is immediately following the double homicide and it outlines how uh, SLED, and and I'll read from the article. I have it up here right now. Um, The Post and Courier sued SLED and Collinson County Sheriff's Office, the the, the Collinson County Sheriff's Office on June 17th for violating the state's Freedom of Information Act, otherwise known as FOIA. That law requires police to release their reports on recent incidents to any member of the public who comes to their offices. When the newspaper's reporters visited the sheriff's office in Walterboro and SLED's headquarters in Columbia, South Carolina, the agencies would not release the reports. The sheriff's office deferred to SLED and SLED would not open its doors. And that's while in the reading from that article. And I wanna underscore that last sentence. SLED would not open its doors. This is a state agency. This is a state building that would not open its doors to the public or to the press. And so when I saw how SLED chose to maneuver around the double homicide in the the first hours of us knowing about this, um, I filed that away. And, you know, again, if, if, if you want to get to know my content, I talk about SLED. I talk about miscarriages of justice um, on in, in, in other in other time at other times. Um, uh, I've learned though that SLED maneuvers this way, and this is a pattern. This is um, something that they typically tend to do. And no one, no one reporter has um, has illustrated just how nefarious SLED tends to be more than Radley Balco of the Washington Post. Radley Balco has written series on South Carolina's uh, problematic law enforcement um, culture, and and Radley has also covered SLED at length. Back in 2018, uh, Radley Balco wrote this opinion piece for the Washington Post, and it was titled, Is South Carolina's Police Oversight Department Really All That Independent? I want to read at least the first paragraph from this June 4th, 2018 story to help you understand SLED's, um, SLED's tendencies. And the reason why I, I'm staying on, on SLED right now is because SLED has refused, still has refused to be transparent. And again, if we're going to establish a pattern um, with not just law enforcement, 
this helps to establish a pattern within the Murdoch family because they've relied heavily upon SLED, not just in contemporary times, but dating back to the 40s. They've used SLED in its early iterations to help them sidestep any type of accountability. But back to Radley Balco's piece from 2018, let me read the first opening paragraph. Back in 2015, I wrote a four-part series on policing in South Carolina. One of the central themes of the series was a state police agency called the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, or SLED. This is generally considered to be the most elite police agency in the state. It participates in drug investigations, corruption investigations, and perhaps most importantly, when there's an officer-involved shooting, it's SLED that comes to investigate. This is true in all of the state except for Richland County. At first blush, this seems like a decent system, better than most. Having an outside police agency investigate shootings by cops is certainly preferable to handling such investigations internally. But in my reporting for the series, I found that SLED isn't as independent and elite as the agency is often portrayed. SLED is staffed with officers who come from other police agencies across the state. And often, SLED agents are assigned to investigate their former colleagues, a practice which critics in South Carolina told me means that in truth, the agency isn't objective or independent at all. Now, that's where I'll stop reading from the Radley Balco June 4th, 2018 piece from the Washington Post. Um, I'll link it in the show notes below as well. But I think that also helps you contextualize what you'll learn about the Mardaw family and how they've wielded so much power for so long. They didn't do that by themselves. They created a culture where all of law enforcement and um, many aspects of this judicial system pretty much uh, moves in concert uh, with, I guess, with their aims and objectives in, in terms of how to hold on to power. So let's stay with that sled piece a little bit longer. And um, after reading more recent reporting from the Washington Post about how sled tends to maneuver around the state, uh, it's important to reference this one case in particularly. Um, this this case was heartbreaking. Um, this took place in uh, June of 1956. The Charleston News and Courier, which was what the Post and Courier was formerly called, they had a headline that reads as follows, Negro to die for attack in Allendale. So this is a Mr. Willie Marion Daniel, age 27, a black man accused of raping a white woman, not just accused of, accused of, excuse me, attempting to rape a white woman. I want to underscore and clarify, Willie Daniel was accused of attempting to, quote, ravish a white woman uh, and also rob her home. So um, there were some questions as reported by the um, Charleston News and Courier. There were some questions around Willie Marion Daniels mental state. In fact, he was observed for 30 days at the state mental hospital in Columbia. So that left me with some questions. But Willie was subsequently sentenced to death. He received a death sentence for attempted rape and robbery. Again, black man, white woman. Um, why am I bringing this up in, talk, in, in terms of, uh, in regards to SLED? Well, Buster made a decision there with this case to bring in SLED uh, to uh, 
not only to uh, root out Willie because Willie, he went on the run for about four days, y'all. Um, and Sled was brought in to um, to help, I guess, corral this case. Uh, and that was, to me, that demonstrated some decision-making from Buster's standpoint and also shows you the proximity um, of the Murdoch family, the proximity between the Murdoch family and SLED, um, proximity that, that is still in place to this day. To this day, SLED almost acts as if it's his own, it's the Murdoch's own personal law enforcement division. So I wanted to tie that or make that connection between SLED being brought in to help with this uh, racialized case um, that caught headlines. I mean, there were a number of stories uh, regarding this attempted rape. Uh, for which Willie, Mary, and Daniel received the death sentence. Why this case is important as well, this case from 1956 is important, is because of another case. Because some folks might say, well, well, Mika, didn't Buster try a white man who was alleged to have raped a black woman? He did. He did. Um, but that case involving Fred Davis, that's the white man accused of raping a black woman, Fred Davis um, received two trials because during the first trial Buster made some incendiary comments to the jury he threatened that if the jury didn't convict Fred Davis the white man accused of of um raping a black woman if the jury didn't didn't convict Fred Davis then he would quote turn loose another uh alleged black rapist he would let that black rapist uh, his name was Israel. Um, this is another case, but he threatened the jury say, Hey, if you don't move, if you don't move how I want you to move, if you don't do as I, what I tell you to do, I'm going to let this other black man go. And he's accused of, of raping white women. Right. So, so Buster's, um, I would say his, time prosecuting cases racialized cases dealing with sexual assault it seems as if buster exhibited peculiar tendencies i I don't i'm gonna let y'all come to your own conclusions um because um that was found to be so egregious um that threat to the jury pool that fred davis the white man accused of, of raping a black woman fred davis was actually um, granted a mistrial and then he had, he was able to get a second trial, right? And that trial Buster then, you know, um, did what we see Alex Murdoch do, which is concoct something to do with his health and basically step down. Uh, in this case, Buster cited, I think he, he eventually cited blood pressure, but why I'm bringing that up is because, um, a lot of the cases that pro that, that this family prosecuted dealt with race, either explicitly or there were racial undertones or, or racial undercurrent. And, and the fact that Buster would weaponize the collective fear that white people held, right? That myth of the black brute. And I'll include a link to more on that history in the show notes as well. But that myth of the vicious, violent black brute that's out here just raping white women well Buster would capitalize on that or he would exploit that fear um that unfounded fear and use that in a courtroom so if he did it during the Fred Davis case how many other times did Buster use race or weaponize race to force an outcome that he desired does that make sense 
Um, so that's that was peculiar to me. Another uh, headline grabbing case that was interesting to me doesn't it doesn't involve sled, but rather it was an investigation. Now I'm going to go back. I'm going back and forth. So please pardon me. I went from, uh, you know, Willie Marion Daniels case was in 1959. Fred Davis's second trial began in 1962, but if you go back with me back to September 14th of 1949, Buster's conduct was called into question. Now, I wasn't quite clear on who actually uh, launched or initiated the investigation. I would, I would venture to say, though, I'm going to pull up the uh, headline right here. I would, I would venture to say that Buster probably made a number of enemies. Right. So according to the Charleston News and Courier, again, this is the Post and Couriers. um, You know, this is what the name they went by uh, back in 1949. According to the Charleston News and Courier from September 14th, 1949, um, there was an investigation launched to um, to find to to look closer at uh, attorney Randolph Murdoch's Randolph Murdoch's professional conduct. But. The investigation, um, well, it was launched in secret. So not many members of the press or public were able to um, to uh, witness testimony. Uh, they weren't able to come in and hear uh, Buster defend himself or hear uh, any of the allegations directly from, from folks' mouths. They weren't able to do that. And that made me ask a question, why was Randolph afforded so much protection in the way of secrecy, right? Again, I think for a family of this, the family family with this much power, you don't stay in power without manipulating all of the levers of justice. And you don't stay in power without other either um, governmental agencies or departments or um, other departments within the justice system, you're not able to maintain this power for almost 100 years without the complicity of other folks who have an investment in maintaining white power or um, helping to fortify white supremacy here in South Carolina, right? So I thought that that investigation that was launched in 1949 was noteworthy because basically people were, were investing, some, someone wanted to investigate his conduct, but yet the proceedings were held in secret, right? Um, another case that caught my eye uh, was that, yeah, um, I don't know how to say this elegantly, but basically Randolph Buster Murdoch was indicted for violating whiskey laws in 1956, right? So just like uh, you know, current day Alex, who just now uh, turned himself in, on um, on Thursday, right? Well, Buster, he turned himself into U.S. Marshals back in 1956, posted $10,000 bond. Does that sound familiar? Posted $10,000 bond. Um, so he was ba- basically able to walk in the interim. Um, but he was accused of just running some sort of uh, illegal whiskey operation. Uh, and that one, that was written about um, numerous times um, by area publications as well. And again, I think raise, bring, lifting this up shows you character, shows you the character, um, shows you perhaps that the fruit that 
you know, the fruit that that <laughs> that comes from this family tree. We we understand how we get a Paul. We understand how we get a double homicide. We understand why we get boat crashes and 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 and, and lack of transparency from slay. We understand all of this a little bit better when we see how many times that this the family and the patriarchs from within this family have violated the law and were was able to just escape. There were numerous articles dedicated to following the solicitor's office during this time period, specifically Buster. There were numerous articles dedicated to showing you how Buster was able to basically become just he was exonerated. Right. So he was able to escape accountability. And to me, that's the story. That's the heart of the story. And uh, not to alienate anyone who enjoys true crime, uh, that podcast genre, even though, again, I, I have my criticisms. And like I do with all the other content that I've lifted up here, I'll include some very important reading and listening about the podcast, the true crime podcast genre and how problematic it can be and how it centers white victimhood. Um, and how it, it ignores largely uh, black victims of crime. Um, I'll include some resources in the show notes, but I think it's particularly important for us to to really think long and hard about the coverage of this story and not just get pulled in by the bizarre details. And again, I will admit, it, it has me at the edge of my seat, you know, more often than not right here in my apartment but I really want to invite folks to ask questions. And I want to leave you with this. Um, I want to leave you with a few questions that I've asked myself and that I hope you ask yourselves as well. So when it comes to the Murdoch family and um, who did what and who done it, can you think about or think deeply about the justice system here in South Carolina and how it's largely um, been, um, how it's been led Right. Um, and how how the justice system serves wealthy white folks. Right. I think that's something that we should think critically about. But let me get to my specific questions. Um, one of one of the questions I, I had that I asked myself was, um, you know, does the reporter. So if you're if you're watching coverage, if you're watching Good Morning America or the Today Show or local reporters, the Island Packet, the Post and Courier, the state newspaper here, if you're if you're uh, consuming any of that coverage, ask yourself, does the reporter or the journalist um, offer a substantive race or class analysis? Because I, I don't think you could talk about the Murdoch's without talking about race and class. Um, and I said, or I should say race and class analysis. Another question I had was, um, does the coverage that you consume, does, does that content commodify or exploit the victims, the Murdoch family's many, many, many victims? You know, is it, is it, are you being a voyeur or is it, are you learning or are you learning new facts and information that help advance the story? Right. Um, are the creators of the content or the reporters capable of presenting diverse opinions, right? I'm giving you my perspective. I've, I've already been very transparent about which lens I view this story through and how I'm choosing to reject the, the true crime genre framing and to look at this as a justice issue, right? And so are other outlets able to do the same? And that's a, I think that's a, an apt question. 
Um, another question I, I would love for you to ask yourself is how is law enforcement portrayed in the content that you're consuming? Is SLED coming off as like some sort of like, uh, you know, like a band of heroes emerging um, out of the South wearing capes or or is the coverage showing you like Thad Moore's piece for the Post and Courier? Is the coverage showing you how SLED and other law enforcement agencies like the Carlton County Sheriff's Department, um, does, does the coverage show you how they are actually obscuring the facts and refusing to be transparent, refusing to disclose vital information that in, anywhere else that the public would be entitled to? So ask yourself, is law enforcement being painting as more of as a, a heroic figure or, you know, is there incompetence? being documented because more often than not law enforcement um can tend to bungle certain cases because of the spotlight because of the the scrutiny and the attention especially like cases like this that have garnered so much national and international attention so how is law enforcement being served up to you as heroes or uh, as a neutral party or as an incompetent as an incompetent um law force so as I close out this episode, I'd like to just reiterate uh, the motivations uh, that I had prior to recording this episode. I don't intend on creating a series uh, based on uh, this explosive story. Um, however, I do encourage folks to continue to, if they are going to engage with this piece, if they are, if they are going to engage with this story, please make sure that you do so. Um, with your critical caps, your critical thinking caps on. Um, it's really important. And ultimately, I, I really want to encourage folks to think long and hard about our justice system, not just how our justice system operates down here in the Black Belt in the South, in the South Carolina Low Country, but throughout the country. Um, I think it's really important. And also, please don't merely view this story as a true crime story. This is about the justice system. This is about concentrated power um, maintained within one family, within one family for so long, for nearly 100 years, and how that just can't be. It's not sustainable, and it's not equitable. It's not fair, and it's not just. All right. So if you dig this content, if you didn't mind me just kind of riffing a little bit, no, it was no scripted content here. I just wanted to organize my thoughts present a few resources, ask a couple of critical questions. But if you dig this content, I'm going to encourage you to please check out the show notes for this episode. There you'll find ways for you to support this podcast via Patreon. You can join me on Twitch Monday through Friday from 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time uh, till whenever. <laughs> but Monday through Friday, I take the Twitch at 7.30 a.m. And uh, yeah, I do something similar to what I've done here, but it's more interactive. And of course, there's a, a visual component that um, is super fun. So please join me on Twitch if you can. And um, and if you can't wake up early and it's just not your thing to pop up super early in the morning to watch a to watch an interactive morning show, um, you can always check out the replay. Uh, I post most, if not all, Twitch live streams. I, I, I download and post uh, each episode to YouTube as well. Um, all of that information will be in the show notes, okay? Okay, I'm gonna wrap it up right here. 
to all my Gullah Geechee folks, all my black brothers, my black sisters here in the low country, uh, here in, in South Carolina, those fighting for social justice and, and, and equality. I want y'all to take care of yourselves. And as always, stay black. <laughs>